Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, John chapter 14. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6 this morning. It'll be on the board, and it's a pretty quick read. So let's read this together from the board together. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we believe and claim this promise as we have already sang that in Christ alone, in the power of your resurrection, in the forgiveness that is brought about by the death, Lord, we stand in Christ Jesus alone and not of any righteousness of our own. And we know that it is of your plan, the foolishness of preaching, that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except by him. And each and every one of us who are here this morning are here not of our own credit or merit, but we are here only based upon the righteousness and merits of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we look at this continuing study we're doing that what is it that we are here for? Why is it that we are here as a church? Why is it that we are here as your children? Why is it that you, upon saving us, do not just take us immediately to heaven, but you leave us here to do a work? And how should we do that work? Lord, we ask you to... Give us a renewed sense of your provision, that we do it only by your strength, only in Christ and him crucified. Lord, that is a message that is foolishness to the world. The world thinks we're foolish for meeting here today, even, even at the risk of our own health, even at the risk of contracting a virus, and yet we are here because our heart is to glorify you and to love you more than we love even our own lives. And Father, I pray that as we look at Christ this morning and the exclusivity of Christ, we pray that we would know that the only hope and the only way forward after COVID and even before COVID was only through Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And so Father, we pray that you will move me aside Open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, that we may see you. That your people may be more like your son through the truths of your word to bring about your glory on this earth. We love you, Lord. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. As you are sitting down, you might want to turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 14. As 
Uh, we're actually going to only be looking at verse six today. I, I wanted to read the entire text just so that you will see the entire paragraph and, and put it into context. And so John fourteen six is what we're looking at. And if you recall last week, you recall that our ultimate purpose in life, everything we do as individuals, everything we do as a church, everything we do as a, uh, a people of God, and even those who are not people of God, their ultimate purpose and the purpose for everything in all creation of all the universe is to bring glory to God. That is our highest and ultimate purpose. That is the reason why God created everything. You may recall, why, why are we here? Why, are, why is uh, Pastor Coates in Canada sitting in a prison cell right now because he refused to quit having church? People think that that is foolish, but it is not foolishness because our ultimate goal is the glory of God. And if God is glorified by me sitting in a jail cell, then to God be the glory. And that is, that is everything we do. That is the purpose of everything that we do. But that is kind of a tall order. That, that is kind of, a, that, that is kind of a, a vague and abstract thing in our minds, isn't it? Because, because how do we glorify God? We looked at some basic principles last week, but now we're actually gonna follow the logic all the way through, and this is gonna take uh, about uh, just a few weeks to do that. We're gonna follow the logic all the way through and see as a church and how as individuals we bring glory to God. And the first thing we need to understand, and we said this last week, is that he who gives the grace, what? You remember? He who gives the grace gets the glory. That's right. So it's not what we are doing. It's not in our own strength. If we can do this in our own strength, then we get the glory, but it is God who gets the glory because he is the one who gives the grace in the first place in order to do it. Beloved, you have breath in your lungs this morning because of the grace of God. Amen. You have salvation in your soul this morning because of the grace of God. You are here this morning sitting at Calvary Baptist Church because of the grace of God. You may not believe that, but it is. You are everything we do, all the good that we do that is of any eternal value whatsoever is because of the grace of God. It is not of our own strength or of our own will, of our, of our own volition. It is all brought about by God, his strength and provision for us. And we've got to understand that. We've got to understand that that everything that we do is by the grace of God because he who gives the grace, what? Gets the glory, that's right. And so as we looked at that, okay, now we need to ask ourselves then, how do we glorify God? It's kind of like when, uh, when you're talking with a husband and wife and, and the husband says, you know, I'm gonna love my wife more this week. Well, how do you measure that? You know, how do you measure that based on last week, right? And so, and by the way, guys hate it when they come to counseling for me because I'm like, okay, so what are you gonna do? What do you mean? What are you gonna do? I guess I'll do so-and-so. Okay, when are you gonna do it? I'll do it Tuesday. I go, okay, what time on Tuesday? Okay, okay, I'm gonna call you that morning 
and just encourage you to keep doing it, you know? I mean, how do you measure I'm gonna love my wife more, right? You measure it by what you do. And in the same way, how do we measure that we're glorifying God? It's by what we do and by whose strength we do it in. And so what we're looking at this morning, we looked at our ultimate priority last week. This morning, we are looking at our ultimate provision. What has God done to enable us to glorify him? What has he granted to us? What by his grace has been given to us in order that we may live lives that glorify God and we may have a church that glorifies God? And we find that answer in John chapter 14, verse six. Some people suggest that this verse should be that I am the true and living way because the emphasis is obviously on the word way because that's the question that Thomas asked. However, if you look at how this is structured in the original, every single word of this, and the ESV tried to bring it out by saying, and the truth, and the life, every single word and how this is structured is like the, is like the ringing of a bell, like the ringing of a church bell, that it's time to come to church, it's time to come to church. In the same way, every time Jesus says, I am the way, and the truth, and the life, every one of those is like the clash of a symbol to get your attention to let you know that this is something that you must absolutely have down, that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we're gonna look at these three words this morning. This is really uh, not really an exposition of the paragraph. It's really just an extended meditation of those three words, the way, the truth, and the life. And how does God give us the grace to glorify him? He does so through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so, in what particular ways does he do that? Well, number one, we see that God provides the way through Christ. God provides the way. And you need, and again, you need to see this in context a little bit. Because John, I want you to get the picture. Jesus is in his last night with the disciples. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be crucified. He has just a few precious hours left with his disciples. And so he allows them in true rabbinic form, he allows them to start asking questions. And this entire chapter is basically a question answer format. Question answer, question answer. And so Jesus says that in my father's house, there are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. Well, some people say, well, Jesus might've overestimated his disciples a little bit when he said that, because it was obviously a little confusing, especially to Thomas. I love Thomas. I can relate to Thomas so much. And he just blurts it out there. He's like, um, we don't even know where you're going. How in the world are we gonna know the way? What are you talking about, Jesus? It confused the disciples. It confused the disciples. And you know, I don't think that Thomas like literally thinks that Jesus is going to another country and he wants to follow the route. He wants them to follow the route. I don't think that's what Thomas has in mind here. Because this phrase, the way, was something that would have been very familiar to the disciples and basically anybody who is familiar with Greek culture, they, they would have understood this. There were a lot of teachers in that day who were claiming to have the way. The most popular is the uh, Qumran community, 
with the Dead Sea Scrolls and this mysterious teacher of righteousness. We don't know who he was, but they talked all about him. And he claimed to have the way, the way of righteousness. And if you followed his lifestyle, followed his interpretations of life, then you will be on the way too. And if you are a Mandalorian, you know this is the way. (laughs) Some Star Wars fans in here, I see. So (laughs) um, this is the way. We always talk about the way, right? It's even come back into popular culture. And all of this refers to a particular lifestyle or a particular interpretation of what the blessed life or what the dutiful life is, right? And the Old Testament also talks much about the way of Yahweh, the way of the Lord. The entire book of Psalms, in fact, you might want to turn to Psalms, Psalm chapter one or the first Psalm. Psalm chapter one is a, is a comparison of the way of the wicked versus the way of the righteous. And that introduces the entire Psalter. And so there in verse six, you see that for the Lord, for Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the way of the Lord is this, this way that, which is known to the Lord and it leads to blessedness. It leads to joy. It leads to being a, like a tree planted by streams of living water that bears its fruit in due season when it's time. And yet the way of the wicked is like chaff that gets blown away with the slightest little winds of culture. We've seen that a lot lately, haven't we? cancel culture and all of this nonsense that's going around. How about we just be adults, right? Anyway, so, <laughs> so anyway, let me get back to this little soapbox of mine. You say, well, doesn't it, aren't you ever offended? Don't you get offended when people say there is no God? No, I don't get offended by that. I know what the Bible says about you. But anyway, so, <laughs> so anyway, so he goes, he says, the way of the Lord, it leads to blessedness and joy, but the way of the wicked leads to perishing. And what we see here is that the way of the Lord is that way of perfect righteousness and perfect obedience. Those who walk perfectly by obeying God's command, both in action and motive and intent. It's not just enough that you do the right things. You have to have the right why and you have to have the right motive. You have to have the right motive. You have to have the right method, excuse me. It's not just enough that we do the right things. That's legalism. Those who walk perfectly, walk perfectly in the commandments, both in action, motive, and intent. And they will live before the Lord. This is what the Old Testament points to. The way to heaven is guarded by the perfect and unyielding holiness and justice of God. That flaming cherub still stands at the gate of heaven that no one but the perfectly righteous may come in. In fact, let me show you this, Psalm 24. Psalm 24, and by the way, it's not without accident. It's not by coincidence that Psalm 24 follows both Psalm 22 and Psalm 23, and you'll see why. Psalm 24, the verse says in verse three, who shall ascend to the the hill of the Lord? 
And who shall stand in his holy place? Now, don't you want to do that? Don't you want to ascend to the hill of the Lord? Don't you want to stand in his holy place? Yes, awesome. Well, who may do that? Verse four, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such as the generation of those who seek him. You know, every time I hear this passage preached, you know how I hear it? It's something like this. Okay, boys and girls. If you want, it says, who may ascend to the house of the Lord, those with clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't give their mouths over to deceit. So you better clean your hands, purify your hearts, and don't tell a lie, and you can ascend to the heaven. That's how I often hear this taught. Let me ask you a question. How many of us have clean hands? How many of us have a pure heart? If you've never told a lie in your life, raise your hand. Never. Good, there's no liars in here. (laughs) (laughs) Beloved, this passage doesn't tell us who can ascend to the Lord. It tells us that we are disqualified from ascending to the hill of the Lord. It tells us that we are disqualified to stand in his holy place. The scriptures demand absolute perfect obedience to God. And the problem is, excuse me, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you fall into that category, which by the way, you do, you are not qualified to ascend to the hill of the Lord or stand in his holy place. And so the question of this psalm is, who can? How can this be possible for anybody? Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Well, guess what? The psalm answers its own question. Because look down in verses seven and eight. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Who is it that may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in the, who may stand in the presence of the Lord? It is God himself. It is Jesus Christ who is the king of glory who ascended into heaven for us. And now what happens is that when Christ says, I am the way, beloved, he's not giving us a new interpretation. He's not commanding us to go the way that he goes, like he's blazing a trail and telling us to follow him. Christ is saying, I am the way. I am the one who ascends to the mountain of the Lord. I am the one who stands in his holy place. I am the way for you. That's what he means when he says, I am the way. His perfect righteousness, his full and perfect obedience has become our way. And so we come to Christ on the merits of his perfect righteousness and not ours. Self-righteousness is such a lie. And by the way, the only one you're fooling is yourself. Such a lie. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, because of 
because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Watch this. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ has become all those things for us. The only, the only measure of boasting we have is in Jesus Christ. That's all we got. This means we cannot trust our own righteousness or our own ability to do good. The one who is righteous and had the perfect righteousness of God requires was Christ himself. And he is our way through his obedience and his righteousness. Isn't that great? One of you think so? That's great. Isn't that great? He is our way. But God also reveals the truth in Christ. And I spent a little more time on that point, so I need to hurry. You know, it's funny. Thomas only asked, what is the way to the Father's house? He only asked about the way, and yet Christ doesn't stop at the way, he goes on. He says, I am the way and the truth. What does this mean? That Christ was always truthful, that he never told a lie? Well, I mean, that's true as far as it goes. It's a little deeper than that though. Wouldn't you love to have a kid like that, by the way? I don't know that I would. I don't know that I want a kid that's always honest with me. Because sometimes they're honest when I don't want them to be. You know, uh, just me. Maybe I'm the only sinner in the room. But anyway, so it actually goes a little deeper than that. Because you see, since the fall, our biggest problem, our deepest problem is ignorance of God. Willingly ignorant, blinded to truth. Ephesians chapter four, verse 18 says that they are, speaking of those who are lost, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. You'll notice that the ignorance that is in them is willing ignorance. Their hardened heart. This is the effect that sin has on our mind. In fact, if you wanna know the $3 word for it, it's the noetic effects of the fall. Isn't that fancy? All it means is, is that the fall has messed up your mind. That's what it means. Your thoughts, your mind are unredeemed. There's plenty of evidence of that around us, isn't there? That why does the culture believe some of the stupid things that they believe? Why are they fighting today? And, and you could even say, why are we losing the freedom to meet as Christians and to have witness in the marketplace? Why are we losing that? Because of some of the stupid things they believe. And yet, why are they doing that? They are willfully ignorant. They are willfully hardening their hearts. They are willfully hardened so that they do not, they are ignorant of God. And if we are going to know God, God must break that mold. He must reveal himself to us. And that's what he's been doing all along. Turn over to Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews chapter one, I'm making you work for it today. Hebrews chapter one. And you'll see here, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I wanna wanna stop right there for a minute. Because God has been speaking all this time. He was speaking long before Christ came to earth. He was revealing himself to us. And it says, first of all, he was doing it through at many times, 
God has spoken throughout the history of his people. There were times that he was especially active in this. There were times that he wasn't. He spoke to the fathers. He spoke the law of Moses. He spoke through the prophets to God's people. It also says he spoke in many ways. As we read through the Old Testament, God speaks in a variety of different ways to his people. Uh, For example, uh, it seems to be direct conversation to the fathers, Adam, Noah, Abraham. He spoke in dreams to Jacob and especially to Joseph and, and even Daniel. He spoke through angels to Daniel. He spoke in visions to the prophets, especially the writing prophets. He wrote down the Ten Commandments with his finger. He spoke through the prophets. He even spoke through a donkey one time, which gives me hope. Not to mention the Old Testament itself. He spoke through the law. He spoke through prophets. He spoke through poetry. He spoke through history. This wonderful tapestry of revelation that we have in all of its glory, in all of its perfect diversity. All of it was true, but it was also incomplete. It was also incomplete. It was speaking of the promise. It has revealed aspects of God's plan and purpose for creation. But the author of Hebrews goes on to say that all of those things were incomplete. But now in verse two, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. And that verse tells us a couple of things. Number one, that Christ, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The old, if all you have is the Old Testament, it is incomplete. The, the revelation is not full. It is, it, is, it is Christ that the revelation is pointing to. He is the culmination of the Old Testament. It's all about him. Every promise, every type, every law, all history, even that wonderful section of the Old Testament that we all love to read every morning, the genealogies. They are all telling us and narrowing the picture, narrowing the promise down so that we know that it is Christ that we are looking for. And when Christ comes, he is the fulfillment of it all. The entire Bible is one story about one redeemer and one rescue plan, and that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And all that truth is bound up in the truth of Jesus. He is the object of all that truth. He is what all that truth is looking toward, and he is the fulfillment of it all. He's also the full revelation of God. Jesus is the truth in that he is the all-sufficient, supreme, and final revelation from God. There is nothing higher than Jesus Christ. There's no other revelation coming. If you're looking for another testament of Jesus Christ, if you're looking for better or more revelation, you need to give that up. Because to suggest that that something is coming now is to, to suggest that there is a revelation that is greater than the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's, impossible. John chapter one, verses 17 and 18, he says, I mean, yeah, let me go there. John chapter seven, chapter one, verses 17 and 18. 
promise I know my way around the Bible. It says, for the law was given through Moses. And I, and I want you to notice that the law was given through Moses. You get the sense right there that John is telling you that the law was somehow incomplete, insufficient. But then he says, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So that's the fulfillment of it, right? Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But then it goes on to say in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Who is that? That's Jesus. He has made him known. Christ is the full revelation of God. He shows us God. He is the word made flesh. He does only what he sees his father doing. Colossians chapter two, verse nine says, for in Christ, all the whole fullness of Godhood, all the full wholeness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. If you wanna know God, you must know him through Jesus Christ. He is the truth. In fact, if you look at John 14, seven, just the verse right under our text, Jesus says that if you have seen Christ, you have seen the Father. You wanna know God, you need to know Christ. In Christ, we have the final revelation for this age. This is, this is the danger of those who point to ongoing revelation, another testament of Christ and stuff like that. Christ as revealed in the word of God is the final revelation of God. He is the one who came. He is the one who died. He is the one who rose again. And he is the one who is coming again with life and liberty to all who believe. He is the final revelation. So, so why do we seek something more? Why do we think that, you know, preaching the gospel is good, preaching is okay, but, but we need all these other things. We need pop psychology. We need uh, all these strategies. We need all this stuff. Why, why do we look for something more? Why do we go into all of these mystical things thinking that we're gonna get something more out of our faith than what Christ has already given us? Beloved, listen, don't, listen, seek to know Christ more. That's the goal of the Christian life. Seek to know him more. Pursue him. Pursue knowing him. Pursue more understanding of him. Pursue more holiness after him. Pursue more love for him. Pursue more power through him. But beloved, do not pursue more than him. If you want to know God, you must know Jesus Christ. He is the truth of God and all God's truth points to him. He's the culmination of all. So Jesus is the way, he is the truth. And finally, he is the life. God gives life through Christ. Romans chapter six, verse 23. Most of us could probably quote that, right? It's a part of the Roman road. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. Unable to do anything for our own salvation. We are quite literally the walking dead. We are quite literally dead people walking. A living death. No satisfaction or hope for the future. And the longer we live in this rebellion, the more dead we become. Maybe you've heard somebody say before, well, he ain't getting any deader. My beloved, if you're living without Christ, you are. 
You're getting more and more dead. In fact, Romans chapter two, verse five, look what it says. This is kind of scary. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Do you realize that the longer you go without Jesus Christ, the more wrath you are storing up for yourself? Do you realize that as you live on, there is more and more wrath as your sin piles up and the debt gets higher and higher and higher? Beloved, this is an interest rate that you cannot afford. This is sub, 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 sub prime mortgage. This is an interest rate that is going to skyrocket. The more you live without Christ, the more wrath you are storing up for yourself. The longer we remain in our death, our lives serve no purpose for eternity except as a storage place for the wrath that is to come. And the longer you remain in unrepentance, the more wrath is stored up for you. But praise God, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one that gives us life. And life is one of the most used terms that that John uses for salvation. John chapter one, verse four, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him will not perish, but what? Have eternal life. The thief comes only to steal and kill, destroy, but I came to give life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. You see, it's not enough just to be reconciled to God. We would have forgiveness of sin, but no positive righteousness. That's not enough. It's not enough for God to be revealed. We would have the truth of God, but morally corrupt, dead, and spiritually disabled to respond. We need regeneration. We need resurrection. We need to be born again. And Christ is the life. And once again, does this mean that we just simply live? No, it's more than that. What is the life that Jesus gives? John 17, three defines this for us. What is life? This is eternal life. What? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Beloved, the life that Jesus gives is nothing less than a living, vital relationship with the living God. That's what eternal life is. We will not be condemned. We have crossed from death to life. It's not just for the future. It can be enjoyed in the here and now. It is life in the spirit. We are assured of our hope in Christ. It guarantees our future glorification and it works holiness in us. Life is living in fellowship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. That is life. And this is what brings the hope of glory, the joy of salvation. This is the precious walk of Jesus Christ that we've been given. So this is why Jesus ends with the obvious implication of this. If Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and the implication is obvious, but still so important that it needs to be spelled out. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Christ is the way, the truth, and life, that means nothing else can be. 
Don't miss the these in front of that. Christ is the truth, the life, the way. It's exclusive and only exclusive. The guy who is, at least he was, I don't know if he still is. Haven't heard from him in a while. The guy who was appointed as the uh, director of evangelism and missions for the General Baptist Convention of Texas on his YouTube channel said that it is possible for people who are who have never heard the name Jesus Christ, they'll still be saved through Christ. They'll just be saved without faith. That's a Southern Baptist talking. Beloved, if that's the case, then the worst thing we can do is say the name of Christ to people. Why not leave them in their innocence? Because it's not the truth. And it's sending people to hell. If you want to know God, you must know him through Jesus Christ. That, beloved, that is not hate speech. That is the most loving thing we can do. If you are caught in a house fire and there is only one way out, you do not love the person by telling them they can stay in the fire. The most loving thing you can do is show them the way. Tell them the truth so that they may have life. And beloved, every lost person is standing in a fire. They are, they are dangling over hell fire and nothing more than a thin little string. One breath away from having that string cut in the words of Jonathan Edwards. If you are here and you don't know Christ, you are dangling over the fires of hell and you are putting your soul, eternal soul, at risk of damnation. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he's the one that throws you the lifeline. He is the one. Don't place your hope in riches. Don't place your hope in love and selfish gain. Don't place your faith in the lies of the world. Place your faith, your hope and love in Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Because he is the only one by whom we come to the Father, our Lord. John 3.36, I give this to everyone that I lead to Christ. I read this verse to them. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. By the way, notice the present tense. If you're in Christ, you have it now. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice that's in present tense too. And if you don't know Christ, you are under God's wrath. But you can have the life of Jesus Christ. You can have the way, the truth, and the life. Save your soul for all eternity if you will trust in him alone. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you that you have given Christ who is our way, our truth, and our life. And Father, no one comes to you except through Christ. You have ordained it this way. You have made it this way, and it is for your glory, Lord. The one who gives the grace gets the glory. And you have given us grace. You've given us peace and given us hope in Jesus Christ. And I pray if there's one here who doesn't know Christ, they will come to know you today before it is everlasting too late. 
Lord, their souls are dangling over the fires of hell and they need redemption. I pray that you would convict them and draw them to yourself that they may have the perfect righteousness given to their account through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And may we recognize that everything we do is only by your grace through Jesus Christ. It is in your most holy, precious, and wonderful son's name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's stand together. I think an appropriate song to end this morning's exposition on.